has not changed. We are still called to love God, love people, and make disciples. Today, the message today, the title is Getting God's Perspective. Getting God's Perspective. You know, a lot of times today, people don't want necessarily to get God's perspective, but we're going to discuss it. And part of that is talking about wisdom. That's what wisdom is, is getting God's perspective and then applying what he says to our lives. So let's look at some wisdom words as we go to 1 Corinthians today, chapter 3. Jack Handy said this, Before you criticize someone, you should walk a mile in their shoes. That way, when you criticize them, you're a mile away from them, and you have their shoes. Mark Twain said, Clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence in society. Eric Thomas said, You can't shine like a diamond if you're not willing to get cut like a diamond. Abraham Lincoln said, The Lord prefers common-looking people. That is why he made so many of them. And Billy Sunday said, Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a, a garage makes you an automobile. I like my version better. I could say I'm a Christian all day long, or I could say I'm a refrigerator all day long, it don't make me a refrigerator. Just like if I say I'm a it doesn't make me a Christian. So today we're back in the book of 1 Corinthians. Now this book, in the city of Corinth, Paul preached in the early 50s. And opposition grew fierce there. And Jesus spoke to him in a vision, assuring him that he had many people there. And so, Paul, for 18 months, taught them the word of God. And then he left. But God used Paul's ministry to bring about the birth and establishment of the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If any among you seems to be wise in this age... Let him become a fool that he may become wise. Now, in that particular reference there, if you have a paper Bible, underline deceive. If you have a uh, digital one, make sure you have one that lets you highlight. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this chapter, these verses... Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would help us to apply your word, and your word is wisdom. And we know the beginning of wisdom, Lord, is the fear of you. God, there are many things going on right now in the world that can cause us to fear. But God, we ask that you would bless us not only in society, but bless us in our calling. Our calling to tell the gospel. 
And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Having God's perspective takes self-examination, application, and reliance on the Holy Spirit. Having God's perspective takes self-examination, application, and reliance on the Holy Spirit. So the first thing we're going to talk about is self-examination. Examine yourself, being sure that the wisdom you hear is God's and not someone else's. 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. In all the books we study in the New Testament, we come across the same theme over and over and over again, and that is self-examination about our lives, about our own wisdom, about our own application of that wisdom to see where we think we are being wise, to stop and examine. The scripture even says, let no man think highly, too highly of himself or higher than he ought, if you like the New King James and King James. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. Proverbs 14, 14 says, the backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. And of course, my favorite, James chapter 3, verse 13. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. Here we find that God's wisdom, His understanding, produces fruit in our lives. Number one, it produces people who live honorable lives. What is an honorable life in this context? It is living by the principles of the Scriptures. If the Bible says not to do a thing, you don't do it. If it says to do a thing, you do it. If you don't know which thing to do, you seek God and ask for wisdom. Guess what? In everything you do, you can't do it perfectly. If you could, then you wouldn't need Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross. Did you know there's a movement of people in the church today that says the Old Testament moral law has no bearing on the church today? Um, Let me just tell you, that's heresy and it's a lie. If we are taught God's law, then we know when we have broken it and how we should respond when we do. Think about this. Imagine yourself walking down a road, and on the left side, you have the law. And on the other side, you have grace from God, Jesus Christ, the New Testament. You can't live an honorable life if you don't know, not, if you do not, sorry, you can't live an honorable life if you do not mind and your heart are not focused on both the Old Testament and the New. You need both. Because what will happen is, is if we only have law and what we should practice, well, then we become legalistic, don't we? you got to wear a tie on Sundays. i got to tell you, there's two men in this room who are putting me to shame with the ties they're wearing. They look good in ties. I'm just happy I get looked at all, all right? Um, And then on the other side, you have grace. And if you get way too far into grace, you start excusing sin. 
God is love. Love is God. Therefore, I have to accept their sin. No, you don't. Love the person by letting them know they're in sin and teaching them in love how to stop. And if they're not saved, the first thing they need is Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. Romans 7, 7 says, Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, if it was the law that showed me my sin, I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. Romans 7, 13 through 25 says, But how can that be? Did the law which is good cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself for what I want to do, what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing it is sin living in me that does it. I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all of my heart. This is coming from Paul. He did not give up the Old Testament scriptures. He said, I love God's law with all my heart. But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind, and this power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am! Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? He's about to answer that question. He says, Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is? In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly when we go to Psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And his law, he meditates day and night. Do you do that? Do you meditate on the word of God day and night? Is it always in your mind? You ever seen a cow try to chew cud? It chews cud. Now, this may be disgusting, but have a great lunch later. But uh, it's got more than one stomach. And so it'll chew, it'll go down into one, vomit it back up, and go down to the other stomach to get it fine enough. But a, chow, a cow will chew cud over and over and over all day. That is the way the Scripture should be in our lives. 
He shall be like a tree, the scripture says, planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And the second thing that wisdom does is it produces humility in the believer. God's wisdom will produce humility, whereas the world's wisdom, the world's way of doing things, will produce pride. When you realize that your wisdom is not God's wisdom, and then you seek God's wisdom, and you know that it doesn't come from you, that will keep you humble, knowing that what you're doing, that what you're applying is not yours. It is God's word. That should keep you humble. What does God's wisdom look like? God's wisdom is about living principles and precepts found in his word. It sounds simple, doesn't it? Yet too often we don't do it. How do we get this wisdom? Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Verse 7 says, he stores up sound wisdom for the upright and is a shield to those who walk uprightly. Proverbs 4, 7, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. In Colossians, we're told, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, meaning outside the faith, redeeming the time. Let your speech always... Be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. That's why we study what we do. That's why we've been studying on Wednesday nights. That's why we've been studying how to answer the atheist, how to answer the Jehovah's Witness, how to answer the Mormon, how to answer the word faithers. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. By the way, the fear there is not just a holy reverence. It's a literal fear of the Lord, of His power, understanding how great He is. That's the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And of course, James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally, without reproach, and it will be given to him. There's been many times when I've looked at a situation and I've, and I've done something about it, and I've looked back and I have said, God, man, I wish I had prayed beforehand and asked for your wisdom. I wish I had, I, I wish I had read the scriptures on this subject. I wish I had remembered what I have studied. I wish I had applied what I've known. Wish I had applied what I've known a lot. So what does that mean? It means we have to apply God's ideas, not ours. Even if you have His knowledge, even if you have what He says in Scripture, you have to apply it. 1 Corinthians 3, 19 and 20 says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Christians today have a big problem, and we do. 
We like to talk about God and we like to do things and say it's for God, but in reality what we need is knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures and the application thereof. Luke 10.38 says this. It's a story about Mary and Martha. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. Now here, imagine this scene. They're having a dinner party with Jesus. And so... They're cooking the meal. They're putting it together, making plans and preparations. And Jesus is teaching in the home, talking. And Martha looks at Mary and says, this isn't fair. How come, how come I'm doing all the work? How come I'm doing all the work? Did you know the scriptures say that 10% of the people in a church are the ones that do 100% of the work? Do you know that? 10% of the people in a church do 100% of the work. That's a terrible statistic. However, there is a time in a Christian's life, usually early on, after they just become saved and baptized, where they need to learn the Scriptures more than they need to make sure the fellowship dinner is, is happening. And so here's what the Lord said. But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you're worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Why? Because the words that God speak are life. They are life-giving and transformative to the soul. So what does this mean for the modern Christian? Well, the modern Christian is spiritually weak and lethargic in their Christianity. They don't know they're doing wrong because they don't know the Scriptures. The Scriptures aren't being preached in many pulpits today. Sin is not being talked about today. It's being talked about here. The other thing that Christians have gotten in the habit of is they've said, we have many devotionals. And I'm just going to give my five minutes or ten minutes a day, and, and that's going to help me learn the Scriptures. Yeah, those devotionals are good when you're on a timetable, but you can't live on devotionals alone. That's like having a snack instead of having a meal. Nothing, absolutely nothing in this world takes the place of sitting down and reading the Bible and nothing else. Spirituality is found in the application of those scriptures to one's life, thereby allowing the fruit of the Holy Spirit to flourish in the believer. 2 Timothy 2.15, we are commanded as Christians, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 
Acts 17.10 says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, and these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. You can't apply God's Word unless you search the Scripture. You can't apply God's Word unless you know the Scripture. Then and only then can you rely on the Holy Spirit to bring the Scripture to your remembrance in times of need. Many a time, many a time I'll be doing something and all of a sudden a Scripture will come to mind. And then I'll go, oh, that's what I should be doing. You ever have that happen? I get, I get, uh, I get, when I teach the kids, I get uh, one student last year. He'd be talking about any number of things, football, computers, video games, whatever. And he says, he says to me, you know, Mr. Kramer, you and Miss Emmy... Miss Emmy did Bible last year. You and Miss Emmy, every time I talk to you, no matter what the subject is, you tell me a scripture. I said, because it applies to the subject. Well, the Bible should just be separate. No, the Bible shouldn't be separate. It should inform and tell you what you're going to do. Without application, I can have all the head knowledge in the world, but it's not going to do me any good. Years ago, there was a kid on the news. He, he memorized every word in the King James Version. I often wonder today, as an adult, a young adult, does he apply what he memorized? Does he apply what he memorized? Matthew ten sixteen says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. The apostles heard Jesus' words day in and day out for three years. His word was in them so that the Holy Spirit could remind them. And being good Jews, they would have the standard teaching as they grew up of the Old Testament Scripture as well. We have to study and read and reread in order to have our senses spiritually attuned so that we can look at a situation, a circumstance... And number one, know that it is against Scripture or not against Scripture. And number two, seek God for the wisdom to handle whatever that situation is. Because if you don't know something is wrong, then you don't know to seek good or how to fix it in your life. The Scriptures say, For my people perish for a lack of knowledge. Knowledge there actually means understanding. Understanding of application. Number three, rely on the Holy Spirit 
to bring wisdom. Rely on the Holy Spirit to bring wisdom. 1 Corinthians 3.21-23 says, So don't boast about following a particular human leader, for everything belongs to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life and death or the present and the future. Everything belongs to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Now remember how Paul started this section while putting straight the Corinthians who were following one of them, Paul or Apollos. Remember that? We discussed that a few weeks ago. He takes all that wisdom, everything he said, and he's starting to wrap that up. Just because you work at a prestigious place or with a prestigious person, just because you worship at a prestigious church, it doesn't mean anything. Because you've gone from following God to following prestige to following an idol. There's a cult out there today in Christianity. It's called the cult of personality. There are many people in this world who are charismatic leaders, who have big personalities. They will get people to follow them. They will get people who should know better to turn their backs on Scripture and end up in sin. This doesn't happen all the time, but it, it sure does a lot of the time. As an example, a very prominent pastor from a large church in Palm Coast was forced to resign some years back over having multiple affairs in the congregation. He has people to this day, and it's been almost six, seven years, who don't care what he did, don't care that he's not applying Scripture, don't care that he's not following Jesus. They want him to start a new church because they like the way he speaks. However, to his credit, he's not done that. So what happened when he left to this very large church? A huge segment of the people said, if Pastor so-and-so is not here, I'm not coming to church anymore. A huge section of people. The question then becomes, who are you following? God or man? People like this have put man on a pedestal and in so doing have made that man their idol, which leads to divisions within the church. Paul says that everything belongs to us and we belong to Christ. What does that mean? First and foremost, that person you're following is nothing more than a servant of Christ, just like everyone else who is a true born-again believer. If that is the case, then it means that you have the Holy Spirit living in you who leads you to the truth found in the Scriptures. When somebody tells me, Pastor, I just don't understand the Scriptures, I respond in two ways. Number one, what Bible are you reading? Oh, King James, do you understand the words? Not really. Try the New Living Translation. If that doesn't clear it up, then I look at them and I go, Are you saved? Are you saved? Because we can mess the Bible up if we don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We can go from orthodoxy, like I like to say, orthodoxy, which means right teaching, into heresy pretty quick, which is wrong teaching. Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. 1 John 2.27 says, But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, 
But, excuse me, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide in him. Does this mean that we don't need pastors or ministers or teachers? No, it means that just because someone stands up there and declares something is the truth, you don't take it at face value. You are a Berean. You search the scriptures. If they stand up and say something that doesn't sound right to you because you know your Bible and you go to the Bible and you read it and you research it, you rely on the Holy Spirit to lead you into all truth, you can say, Pastor, I don't understand what you said. Or, Pastor, what you said is heresy. Let me show you from the Scriptures where you're wrong. Any pastor worth his salt will listen. Martin Luther had a saying, Unless you can prove to me by Scripture and by logic and reason, then I will not recant what I have written. He nailed 95 theses, 95 statements to the door. And those statements were against the Roman Catholic Church. And thus began the Protestant Reformation because the Roman Catholic Church had brought in so much heresy, so much working of man and not of God. Martin Luther sought to make himself right with God. He worked hard. He used to beat himself with whips and a cat of nine tails on his back until he came across Ephesians 2.8. For it is by grace you are saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It means we rely on the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. We need the ministry. We need ministers to help and guide us. It does not mean we throw out our own biblical study and our own logic. That's how modern Christianity has gotten to where it is today. People just accepted that because the man at the front said something to be true, it's got to be true. That's how so many wolves in sheep's clothing have come into our churches today. Now that being said, I think we're in a time in America where the values of Christianity haven't just been done away with in our country, but are being actively opposed in our country. This means that the wolves in sheep's clothing will now be more transparent to the real church. How do you mean that? Well, because the wolves in sheep's clothing will start ripping scriptures out of context in order to um, fall in line with the world's ideas, with the world's way of doing things, with the world's morality. It's already happening. They've already done it. Mainline Protestant denominations have have ordained women and homosexuals. New denominations have been formed that ordain women and homosexuals. The great falling away has started. For example, anybody remember Ray Bolts? You remember he did um, The Lamb, the song The Lamb? Did you know he's a homosexual practicing now? When he left his wife, he lost his voice for two years, literally. And he doesn't see that that was a judgment from God. 
listen, we're going to be able to see the wolves in sheep's clothing more and more transparently. This means that the government, as well, is making it harder and harder for a church to exist, to own property as an establishment. It also means that a lot of Bible-believing churches who refuse to bow the knee to this world's morality will find themselves burned down, the people beaten, or outright killed. Now, we aren't quite there yet, but it's coming. And we need to keep praying for the people of our nation that there would be a revival in the hearts of the people and the power of God to come back to our churches. Now, on that, I was reading an article yesterday and there's a gentleman who writes for the Christian Post. That's what it's called. And he wrote that pre-1994 in America was the classic Christian morality. As we know it, that's what ruled, that's what reigned. That was the time of Jerry Falwell and the conservative right started. That was the time of the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Church. And then from 94 to 2014, it wasn't, it wasn't popular to be a Christian. You couldn't be, an up, you couldn't be an upstanding. It doesn't matter if you went to church or not. You could be an upstanding citizen without going to church. Before that, if you wanted to be seen as upstanding, you had to go to a church somewhere. And it was usually the big church so that you could make business contacts. And that went on for a little while. But from 94 to 2014, it didn't matter. And during both of these times, churches were reaching out to people. They were still evangelizing. In the 94 to 2014, we had the seeker-sensitive churches, Bill Hybels and everything like that. They went, okay, we understand you're upset with how traditional churches work, so you come to us and we won't take up an offering. We'll just put a box in the back since that offends you. Now, me, I got my own problems with that, but that was their outreach. And then from 2014 to present, it's literally become, how dare you tell me I'm in sin? You see, the morality of the, of the country has changed. And it's only getting worse. It is our job to figure out how to reach the lost. And here's one thing that we know. And the convention is guilty of it. Churches today are too busy infighting because there are enemies within the church than they are seeking to save the lost. Folks, we need to share the gospel, the good news. What is the good news? That Jesus Christ, born of a virgin had three years where he did signs, wonders, miracles, and proclaimed himself the Son of God, the second in the Trinity, died on a cross for your sins, and rose again on the third day, declaring that, hey, he has the keys to the kingdom of death, hell, and the grave. Who can't get excited about that? That's the gospel. The problem is, is I was... Uh, I was, 
for a little while I did um, motorcycle ministry in, in prisons. And one of the guys doing the trainings said, don't focus so much on the virgin birth. We don't need to, we don't need to focus on that. I said, but that's part of the good news. That fulfilled all of previous prophecies in the Old Testament. I said, you take that away, you take the Godhead away. Because you really do. You take away the miraculous. Well, we got him rising on the third day. Uh Uh-huh, but it's still part of the gospel. Don't compromise the gospel. Don't compromise the gospel. D.L. Moody is famous for saying, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. We have used that as a crutch. Preach the gospel at all times, period. That includes using words, folks. Live what you preach, but use words. Jesus said, if they didn't praise me, the rocks would cry out. You think they were praising him by action or by words? The people were praising him by words and action. They were laying down palm fronds when he entered. So if you remember nothing, remember having God's perspective takes self-examination, application, and the supernatural reliance on the Holy Spirit. You've got to have all three to make sure that your life is lining up with what God wants, God's perspective. Self-examination, application, and Holy Spirit reliance. As the ladies come and sing. Let me ask you a question. How are you today? Have you kind of slipped when it's come to sharing the gospel with a hurting and dying world? I can get along with a lot of people, but the gospel is offensive to a lot of people. What do you mean? Jesus is the only way? Yes, he is. He said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and any man can't come to the Father unless it's by me. By the way, that's a Joe Kramer version of the scripture there. You can look, it up, look the real one up later. Or, whether you're by live stream or recording, are you sure that you're sure that when you die, you will wake up in heaven? And if you are sure, are you sure that Jesus is going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or is he going to say, hey, you made it. Be saved as through fire, like we talked about last week. As we stand and sing, if you'd like to join the church by letter, by statement, by baptism, or special prayer, I'm up here for that as well. As we stand and sing, Miss Joe. Let's grab that hymnal, turn page 305. All right.